Good morning. We have officially entered the time of the year that the church calendar calls proper or ordinary time. For those churches who don't follow the church calendar, I guess it's just June. Ordinary time, though, is the season following Pentecost that lasts until Advent, the beginning of the church year. It's a long season, and it is intended to be a time of, of response and recovery. The other half of the year, from Advent through Pentecost, is spent intensively tracing the life of Jesus Christ, beginning with his birth, moving through his life and death, and eventually ending with the resurrection, ascension, and the arrival of the Holy Spirit. But proper, or ordinary time, is intended to be a response to Christ in our own lives. You can think of it like an echo. We're attempting to echo the life of Christ back to God in our own hearts, homes, and community. And during Ordinary Time 2020 at First Presbyterian Church, we are going to spend the first 10 weeks walking through the letter to the Ephesians and the last 14 weeks exploring the book of Daniel. This morning, therefore, we are introducing the letter to the Ephesians and using both the opening and closing sentences of the letter read for you by Sandy just a moment ago to do so. Ephesians is a, a beautiful work of theology, and it has left its re readers simultaneously encouraged and dizzy. One contemporary scholar, scholar remarks that the line dividing one section from the next is sometimes unclear. The syntax is frequently obscure or broken, and lengthy digressions are common. Erasmus, the great Christian humanist who was writing during the time leading up to the Reformation, believed that the Apostle Peter had Ephesians in mind when he snarkily commented that some of Paul's letters contain some things that are difficult to understand. And going even further back, Origen, writing in the first half of the third century, says that Paul heaped up more obscure ideas and mysteries unknown to the ages in this epistle than in all the others. A close reading of this letter may have you nodding your head in agreement with these criticisms, perhaps even relieved that you aren't alone in feeling the same confusion that Origen and Erasmus admit. At times, Paul comes across as distracted, excited, or desperate. He writes with great energy, interrupting even his logic with seemingly unconnected outbursts. It's an emotional letter. But the circumstances under which it was written and the purpose for which it was written perhaps help to explain the nature of the text with its run-on sentences and redundant adjectives. Paul was in prison when he wrote Ephesians. In his closing, in verse 20, he calls himself an ambassador in chains. And it sounds, based on his request for prayer in verse 19, that he expects his trial to be imminent. Pray also for me, he writes, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of, of the gospel, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. He expects that soon he will have to speak 
He so badly desires that his speech will correspond with truth and reality that he solicits the prayers of the Ephesians. He's under pressure from the world around him to compromise and speak words that he doesn't truly believe but will save his own skin. But Paul, in this this moment of, of clarity, knows that he would rather die than deny Christ or go against his own conscience in order to live a while longer in a world that bears no correspondence to truth. His only crime, if you can call it a crime, was that he believed that Jesus Christ was the Son of God incarnate, the true King of this world, who reconciled all people, Jew and Gentile alike, back to God. And he refused to remain quiet about it, because he felt himself obligated, called, you might say, to stand in Christ. In the opening verse of this letter, Paul describes himself as an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. In other words, Paul was what he was because of God. He bore in his soul the conviction to live in accordance with the truth of Jesus Christ because God set it there in a divine act of redemption. God had purchased Paul And Paul knew that he owed the remainder of his life on earth to God. Paul was trying to be faithful to Jesus when the forces of this world were pressuring him to compromise. He found himself in conflict with both Jews and Romans, and the space in which he could honestly live in this world was rapidly shrinking. He longed for a a clear mind about what it meant to be distinctively Christian in his context and situation. And he longed for the boldness not to shrink from that understanding. And it was in this state of mind that Paul wrote his letter to the Ephesians. As we consider the scattered, interrupted nature of his correspondence, it's significant to recognize that there was no explicit occasion that prompted his letter. He was not responding to any one thing in particular. Ephesians, in this way, is decidedly unlike 1st or 2nd Corinthians, where Paul is addressing specific problems in the Corinthian church that have been reported to him. In Ephesians, Paul is trying to encourage the Ephesians to live a distinctively Christian life in a city that is pressuring them to compromise and conform to lies that fall outside of the faith into which they have been brought by Christ. Throughout his letter, he encourages unity in the church, and he expands their view of the world beyond the natural boundaries of life and death so that they understand the cosmic significance of their salvation and what is at stake in this fight for truth. These are the things, brothers and sisters standing by your side, and a sense that life extends beyond this moment, that support the sort of perseverance in the face of opposition that Paul is encouraging in the, in the Ephesians and longs for in himself. He writes to the Ephesians for this purpose, and yet knowing his own circumstances, you can't help but feel that Paul is at least partially writing to himself as well. He's mustering his own strength by encouraging it in others. It's no wonder, therefore, that such emotional energy runs in his words. It's not just the Ephesians end at stake. 
but also his own. In his greeting, the, the first two verses of chapter 1, Paul locates the Ephesians in his same position as they are related to God. Paul was an apostle by the will of God. And the Ephesians are the saints and faithful ones in Christ Jesus. Their status as saints and believers or faithful ones is established and located in the person of Jesus Christ. They are found in him by virtue of his pursuit of them and not the other way around. This is a point that Paul will elaborate upon in much greater detail in the next section, which we'll explore together next Sunday. But the work of redemption, the act of turning sinners into saints and skeptics into believers, finds its beginning in the heart and mind of our triune God. The plan to redeem the world in Jesus Christ began before the foundation of the world so that those who believe and those who are called saints are what they are because of God. The Ephesians had an upward calling, an obligation to live into the reality of their identity in Christ. It's the obligation that every Christian must seek to fulfill, to be what you have become in Christ, to struggle to remain in him at great cost even to yourself. Because every culture at some point, and for some cultures at several points, every culture chafes against the gospel. There were several places where the Ephesian culture chafed against Christianity, and this influenced what Paul wrote to the Ephesian church, as we will see in more detail in the coming weeks. You might say that the Ephesians were spiritual people. The city of Ephesus was, as one scholar describes it, obsessed with demons and magic and was saturated with idolatry, particularly the worship of Diana, a.k.a. Artemis. The story of Paul's ministry in Ephesus, recounted in Acts 19, illustrates how the gospel threatened and was threatened by both of these cultural realities in Ephesus. Acts 19.19 says that those who became Christians understood that repentance from their cultural practices was necessary, so they burned their books of magic. They burned them at great financial loss to themselves. They could have sold them and recovered some of the cost, but their repentance was so thorough and their new hatred for the cultural lies that had deceived them for so long was so strong that they would rather burn the books than let lies float about and contaminate their city. It was drastic, yes, but it was necessary according to their own consciences. Following Christ demanded it. Through this act, they were speaking not only to their own souls, but to the entire city of Ephesians, of Ephesus. It was a message that was heard loud and clear because the repentance of these sinners turned saints led to a riot instigated by silversmiths who made miniature personal statues of the goddess Diana for people to worship at home. Magicians were burning their books and Ephesians were no longer buying silver idols and the culture would not tolerate it any longer. So they resorted to violence and a mob drove Paul out of the city. Ephesus chafed against the church, 
And the Christians in that city felt the pressure. In addition to the city's obsession with the occult and allegiance to Diana, there was also the much more systemic pressure to worship the emperor. The whole idea of emperor worship is a foreign concept to us. But as one scholar explains, worship of the emperor and his family, particularly of Augustus, was a prominent feature of life at all societal levels in Asia during the latter half of the first century. Ephesus was an especially important center of the imperial cult. The message that the emperors were warrior gods defeating their foes and bringing order to the world appeared on coins and on the reliefs of imperial altars, one of them found at Ephesus. Sometimes the imagery depicted the warrior emperor trampling his enemies underfoot. It was a potent picture for the Christians in Ephesus to be, to be able to imagine themselves as those being crushed by the foot of the emperor for refusing to worship him as a god. It was a reminder that jingled in their pockets on the very coins that they held. Non-participation meant at least the loss of opportunity and income. They would at least be strangers in their own streets, held in contempt by their neighbors, or worse, they would be put to death as enemies of the state. You can see that the Ephesian Christians were under immense pressure to conform to their society. They felt pressure to mix a little magic into their worship of Christ, or to set Jesus alongside Diana and the emperor. This is the way that this sort of wickedness works. It's happy to piggyback onto Christianity. It's content to serve as social lubricant because it knows that it's merely easing the way for Christians to substitute some social or financial good for Christ. There is no kingdom in this world, and the United States included, where there is perfect overlap with the kingdom of God. There is always some place where the dominant cultural narrative applies pressure on Christians to conform to some unquestioned idea, ideology, to bend the knee, and Christians must be virtuous enough to stand in the face of it, regardless of the cost, and refuse to participate. Otherwise, we are revoking our heavenly citizenship in favor of our earthly one. But to do that, you must know what it means to be distinctively Christian which requires activity on your part, on the part of the Christian, to actively pursue truth and to cultivate virtue through the practice of Christian discipline. In order to be able to answer the upward call upon your life, you must be putting forth effort to understand the culture in which you live and to understand the story into which you have been born through the waters of baptism. This is what Paul was seeking to do for the Ephesians and for himself in this letter. And it's my prayer for you as well. In our country, there are things that must be resisted in order to stand in truth and stand in Christ. May God give us eyes to see, the boldness to stand, and a willingness to lose all things so long as we are able to be called saints and faithful ones in Christ Jesus on the last day. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.